0: Good morning friends. Good to be with you today. I'm excited to be here. No doubt you notice things look a little bit different than they even did last week behind me outside, right? And I've seen a lot of building campaigns in my life and they don't normally move that quickly. That is because nearly 350 families have outpaced the giving for the players box campaign for near, nearly $3.5 million at this point and things are moving out there. And uh, students will have a place to be known and, and seen and, and purposed uh, through that ministry. Because of such outpacing of generosity for the Players Box campaign, generosity is the fuel. If Southbrook is an engine in a, in a, in a vehicle, your generosity is the fuel. We need you for the general fund. The general fund at Southbrook that we contribute to through physical donation boxes here in the room and at the info center, and namely through pushpay.com, it is ultimately what makes that happen. That is, not all your generosity gets focused in in being seen physically right out there. It's happening in places like this video demonstrates. That's because of you, and as we're coming to the end of the year, the general fund up like you always have, because, I mean, kids wearing socks in wintertime is imperative. And uh, here you are, there they are. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, uh, as Leslie Newmagan says, the whole Christian thing, God has done for us what the gospel said he would do to the person who's worried who's stressed, to the person who's suffering, and to the person who feels unwantable. May your gospel go through their heart. By Jesus' name, amen. So Romans five, one through 11, here we are. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand. Now we rejoice in the hope of God's glory, and not only this, but we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, character hope. And this hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, now, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare die. But God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, well, how much more, since we have been reconciled, will we be saved By his life, not only this, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. What a passage. What does Paul mean? Paul says this When the gospel, being justified by a gift, grace, through faith, when it finally gets through to you, and it never stops getting through to you, friends, when it finally gets through to you and it goes through to you again, you get two things because of one thing you get peace. And you get hope because of love. Does that sound good? Here's the journey that the Holy Spirit will take you on today. I'll map it out for you. If I don't get in the way and screw this thing up, this is what will happen. <laughs> it's. I see it. It seems true. Well, it would be like for my life. I need it. I'll take it. Now I get it. The it is the gospel. And it never stops getting through to you, going through your head and into your heart and through your body and out into the world. It never stops getting through to you. So this gospel that Paul says, we know what it means. What does it do in your life? It gives you peace. It gives you hope because of love. So number one, peace. And we, as you saw this in verse one and two, Paul says, we have peace with God. And in the that the gift of peace, we stand, verse two. The gospel gives you a peace with God that will allow you to stand in any circumstance. A uh, shoulders I've been standing on for this series is se Kim's Kim's uh, uh, dissertation he published as The Origin of Paul's Gospel in 1981. And he goes to great lengths to show Paul's gospel is directly related to his Damascus Road experience, Acts 8 9. Galatians 1, that when he encountered Jesus, the physically resurrected Jesus, this was the lowest point in Paul's sin as a persecutor of the church, and it was the highest point of his pharisaical justification by works of the law. And at the right time, hmm, he encountered Jesus, who was God in Christ. And instead of pouring out wrath, God poured out love in him by the Holy Spirit and Paul stood with God, and this is his gospel that is the power and the salvation. Therefore, 2 subpoints to peace, uh, a preposition and a verb. And that's a, that's a Bible study hack for you, by the way, at no extra cost today, that if you don't know what a passage is meaning, which we're all there all the time, right? Uh, look at the prepositions, look at the verbs. They contain all the theology. That's where they it all are. Uh, so the preposition here is with, as I said, verse 1, with God. Verse 10, as we read, we, we were enemies with God. Paul says, we were once enemies, but now, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Our relationship has seen reconciliation. If I were to guess, you probably don't actually realize how your behavior indicates that you still believe you're an enemy with God, and therefore the gospel hasn't truly gotten through to you. I say this because this is is what the Holy Spirit preached to me this week. So, Sunday school quiz. Ready? Pop quiz. How is God most pleased with you? When is he most pleased with you? When you're obedient, yes? Yeah. No. <laughs> it was a leading question, I'm sorry. <laughs> Plot twist, it's not. You can't earn God's pleasure, you can't earn God's love. He pours it out as a gift, Paul says. It's really great when my kids are obedient. I love when my daughter doesn't scream when she has to brush her teeth at night, and I love when my son doesn't act like a teenager and sulk when he has to take out the trash. I love it, but it doesn't make me happy, you see? What makes me happy when I'm pleased with my children is when they're in the serenity of play, when they're untethered to trouble, opening Christmas presents, when they're sleeping, you see? Here's why. (laughs) I didn't mean that as a joke, I really didn't. Bedtime's tough stuff, guys. Um, But you know, your kids are sleeping, it's precious. They don't have, here's the point, here's the point. There's a chronology here, you see. My love fundamentally precedes their obedient acts. Do you see this? We're historical beings. My love fundamentally precedes, they can't act and then go and get my love. It precedes that, you see. Now I'm not underestimating the cruciality of obedience in the Christian life. That is there. But it's not fundamentally there. That's consequential. It's, it's not basic. It's not fundamental as love is. My love for my children fundamentally precedes their obedient acts. So then how much more than this? Friends, would your father in heaven love you if such a wretched man as I for my children? So we have peace with God. He wants to give it to you. Why? Because he does. <laughs> That's Why? justification by a gift through faith. His peace isn't dependent upon your work or your circumstances, and it doesn't actually change your circumstances. It changes you and allows you to stand in whatever circumstances you're in. It's more dynamic than changing your circumstances changes you. With is the preposition, stand is the verb. We have peace with God, verse one. Therefore, verse two, we can stand in whatever company and with whatever circumstances that we may be put in. Psychiatrist Kurt Thompson says in his great work, The Deepest Place, about Romans 5.2, to stand, imagine this, to stand grounds and mobilizes a person. The gospel balances you, you see it puts you in reality. When you know precisely who you are before God, your insecurities, your expectations, they no longer immobilize and destabilize you. When you know you're a sinner, you don't have to hide anymore. When you know you're declared righteous, you don't have to prove it anymore. And your self-esteem never gets too low as a sinner because someone died for you. And you never get too arrogant in your declared righteousness because someone died for you. You can't do more than that. You see, it balances you. It stabilizes you, the gospel. solves your problems. Look at the story in Luke 7 that Jesus tells about this in his life. Now, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went into the Pharisee's house, and he took a place at their table. And then a woman of that town who was a sinner, she learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house, and so she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. And when she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and anointed them with perfumed oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman who was touching him and she's a sinner. And So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Say it, teacher. A certain creditor had two debtors who owed him 500 silver coins and the other 50 and when they could not pay him, he canceled the debts of both and now who would love more? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. Jesus says, Bible answer question correctly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfumed oil. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. She has loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And he goes on to tell her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There's much to say here, but I'll say this. Do you think this woman was at all timid, at all insecure about walking, into, walking up to an increasingly famous rabbi in the home of a Pharisee? Her peace was with the only one in the room that it needed to be in. She stood with him, and Jesus stood with her. And you can have that kind of peace, too, where you can stand in his love, and your fear doesn't stand a chance, do you see? As uh, teachers, we give five questions of application after every sermon um, to be put on social media every week, if you didn't know this. And on there, I can't get into it today, but on there, I'll give you a simple practice that I do and so many other Um, more blessed saints than I do um, in our normal life to cultivate peace every day and to make it a practice of ours. So go on to uh, our Instagram and, and you can find that there. That's peace, standing with Jesus. Number two, hope. Verses two through five, we also rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Not only this, but we rejoice in sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character, character hope. Hope does not disappoint us. So the gospel, it gives you a hope that can endure suffering. So much so that you can rejoice in suffering. You can see beauty in it. And I don't say that lightly. So we have three subpoints to hope. Number one, hope is found within suffering, not outside of it. You won't have hope if you don't suffer. And by no means is this to say suffering's good. And it's not from God. It is to say that if you never suffer, you have little meaning. Without meaning, you have no hope. Hope is directly related to the meaning in your life because there's no meaning in life without relationships and responsibilities. And the wealthier your life is with relationships and responsibilities, the greater you are at for loss, the greater risk you're at. Darkness targets you with its chaos. When we lose people and things, we suffer in grief and it is in such despair where hope is exclusively useful. 2008, the then uh, future President Barack Obama campaigned his election on the idea of hope, if you remember this. Simpler times, Obama-McCain. This cultural moment of, of, of campaigning on the idea of hope, it begs the notion that our culture supposed that A, suffering, all things wrong with the world, can be legislated out of the world, although we learned last week that wasn't true because you can just vote something out that's hopeful. B, hope by this perspective is the exchanging for suffering for hope. Hope is in this sense the eradication of suffering. But that's not at all true. That's not at all what the word of the Lord says about suffering and about hope. Paul states that hope is made for in suffering. It is found within suffering, not without it all things wrong with the world will be dealt with by lord jesus one day into that we hope but right now hope is found in suffering as the song of refuge we say you don't need refuge if it's not storming you need refuge if it's storming number 2 hope is of the future because it's of the past therefore it affects you right now it affects your present right now and i have to just, i have to Deconstruct to, to construct something here, I have to tell you what it doesn't mean. And I'm speaking to young men here primarily with this point, okay? Young men, you decide what age that is 20 to 50 something. <laughs> young men. There's a rise in stoicism, by my view. Uh, stoicism is, this is probably due to popular podcasters like Ryan Holiday and whatnot, um, but for that reason. Also, stoicism, it makes you look tough and smart at the same time and what young man wouldn't want that? I could give you all sorts of quotes. Stoicism is that you know, take a stiff upper lip to your sufferings, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Life helps those who help themselves. Big boys don't cry, big girls don't cry. Um, it begins 2,000 years ago with Zeno, a Greco-Roman philosopher, but here's some quotes on, on what stoicism is, a, is about. It's about, the, by virtue of one's will, one can achieve contentment, a good spirit, no matter the circumstances or suffering, because you are to confine yourself to the present, Take a step of her lip to your trauma of your past. Don't waste time with the future because it's all the fate of the gods. Keep oneself warm and comforted is a waste of time. Suffering is of the imagination. It's not reality. Seneca, who was a contemporary of Paul's, Paul actually knew his brother. Seneca was a philosopher. He would have been to Paul's audience here like uh, Joe Rogan is to us. Um, Seneca said this, Cease to hope and you'll cease to fear. Your fear is because you're hoping too much. Ground yourself in reality. Steal yourself. It doesn't work. Anthony Cronman, a self-titled pagan, he's also a philosopher and professor at Yale Law School, he says in a lecture, Stoicism stopped working for me. Stoicism brought him to a point in his life where, quote, the meaning of my life could not be ultimately secured in a way that would be entirely satisfying. And personally convincing, unless I could relate all of that, my life, to something that is beyond time. And the word for that, he says, is eternity. That's a philosopher's way of saying there's no meaning if there's no need for hope. And there's no hope unless one, unless you can discover in your present time while suffering something that is beyond your present time that is pulling you towards that. Hope affects your present time right now precisely because it's not of your present time. It is beyond your present time. Again, for that reason, uh, psychiatrist uh, um, Kurt Thompson, he says with his patients who get through trauma, hope is something they ultimately remember. Hope is of the future. Because it's of the past, therefore it affects your present reality. Number three, and um, you can you can laugh here. I jest. Uh, I'm not sure what it says about my childhood. Uh, well, number three, the, the um, hope is not an end in itself, but it points us to completion. This is number three. I'm not sure what it says about my childhood, but uh, my parents, God loved them. The first uh, verse I remember memorizing was suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope. Not John three sixteen, but that. Um, at number two. Every Christmas, every Christmas, we had a cozy family night in, and we would have to watch It's a Wonderful Life. And yes, I love the movie now, but as a kid, a black and white Christmas movie about regret and grief, (laughs) whew, I mean, I just hated it. I love it now. Towards the end of the movie, if you haven't seen it, George Bailey is sitting at a bar, and up to this point in his story, George's life, that which began with ambition, eagerness, gonna be someone, somewhere, is now full of loss and regret and grief. In tears, shaking in anguish, he prays, Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way, God. Biographers of Jimmy Stewart, the actor who played George Bailey, show this line to be largely improvised. Paraphrasing biographers, the tears Stewart was crying, the prayer, it was a moment, a genuine moment because he was experiencing a PTSD-induced episode as the repressed trauma and hell serving as a B-24 pilot over Nazi-occupied Europe flooded into his memory at that moment. And B-24 pilots were typically killed by Mission 8. Stewart had flown 20. He held that in his body. Reflecting on filming the scene, Stewart would later say, as I said these words, I felt the loneliness, the hopelessness, having nowhere to turn, and My eyes filled with tears. I broke down sobbing. This was not at all planned, but the power of that prayer. The realization that our Father is in heaven and he's there to help the hopeless. It reduced me to tears. Stuart found a new face in the Lord after this, which he attributed to this prayer. But he also attributed to a seed that was planted by his Presbyterian father who had slipped a note in his pocket as he left for war in Europe. His father's note read, Jim, Jim, I'm banking on the enclosed copy of this 91st Psalm, The Shelter and Refuge of the Lord. The thing that takes place of fear and worry is the promise in these words. I'm staking my faith in these words and I feel sure that God will lead you through this mad experience. I can say no more. I only continue to pray. God bless you and keep you. I love you more than I can tell you, Dad. And if you've seen the movie, you know George Bailey, in the end, doesn't necessarily first escape hell. He sees beauty in hell, and he follows that beauty to a new life, to resurrection, all things undone. (laughs) Although we have hope, hope isn't the end in and of itself. Hope must not become an idol, it can. The point of hope is to get to a point where you don't need hope. Paul says the object of our hope is glory. Whose glory? Where such glory? In fact, think at what point in history do you see a hope that is not outside of suffering but within suffering? A hope that affects your present time now and secures your future later because of an event in the past. And a hope that is not an end in of itself but points us to the completion of all things that is hope fulfilled. I'll answer the questions for you. It is the glorious moment in Calvary's Hill, the beautiful cross of Christ. In suffering, we look to the cross of Christ because the cross is so triumphant over all things wrong with the world that you can even see beauty in hell. Even when you look at the hell of suffering on the cross, you see something beautiful. I'll show you. M- Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. Jesus shouts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 which goes on to say, I groan in prayer, but your help seems far away. Why? The pagan says, oh, look at the cross, it's so virtuous. The Christian says, look at the cross, it's so beautiful. Jesus was experiencing the essence of hell and wrath, not just in his mind or his body, but he was suffering in his soul. The essence of wrath, biblically, is the total passivity, the letting go, of God's willed order. He lets go. The essence of hell is the complete separation of God's loving presence forever, a fracturing. And for the first time in all of eternity, the second person of the Trinity was fractured from the Father, and the Father fractured from the Son. There are many people in this room hear me on this, who have suffered the physical torments of cancer. And if I asked any one of them and proposed to these blessed saints that the history of the cosmos will be put in order, the suffering of all humanity will be healed, all your pain will go away forever. If just for 24 more hours you withstand the worst possible physical torment that cancer gave your body, would you do it? And those brave men and women would probably say, yes, I would do it. You can withstand the worst kind of physical suffering when you know it's not forever. I race marathons. Part of the reason I can do that is because I know it's not going to last forever. So I can deal with it for like, you know, a few hours. But what about the suffering that's not of the mind and not of the body and that is not experienced temporarily? What of suffering of the soul? Suffering that is experienced for the dread of eternity, Such is the torment of the soul of the Father and the soul of the Son for what was like eternity. Christ did not only suffer physically and mentally on the cross, he suffered his soul as it was fractured off from heaven from the Father and Spirit, and he descended into hell, as the creed says, from the lowest dungeon of the highest peak, a thousand years upon a thousand years of eternal suffering, His hell, the hell took his Spirit eternally for us. There's an ancient rabbi that said, All of my life, I've known what it's like to love the Lord my God with all my mind and my body. And as he was being tortured to death by the Romans, he said, And now I shall know what it is like to love the Lord my God with all my soul. You see, Paul positions hope in a sequence in verse 3 and 4. If you notice this, his grammar kind of changes. Suffering produces endurance. And endurance, character, and character, hope. Hope is like a ruby in a pile of rubble. It's an object that we're we're pulled to. pulls us along through suffering. Just as the attraction of the beauty of the shire pulls, and the small as it may be, remembering hearts of Frodo and Sam, through the suffering of Mordor, the shire pulls them along. They remember the taste of strawberries. So the cross is triumphant for us. That even in hell... You can see something beautiful. We see the glory of God's love for us. You see, hope is not the end in and of itself. Our hope, it points to something. So, of course, this hope does not disappoint us. But how? Why should we have such gifts of peace that solve our problems, hope that helps us endure suffering? How should this be given to us? It is because of God's love for us. A vicarious, substitutionary, sacrificial, self-giving love. The grandest kind of love. Number three, the peace and hope you get from the gospel. It's because of the pouring of God's love, you see. Love. I don't know how to talk about it. It's so much greater than you and I could ever know. We have to go, we have to go deep for just one minute, okay? Okay? I'm not going to take you into waters that you can't swim. Trust me, take my hand. We're going to go into deep waters. Put your scuba gear on. Hold your breath. We'll come up for air. But love. For the first time in the letter, Paul presents the Trinity. If you you lay the letter out, you see chapters one through four. God. But then he gets to chapter five, verse five. The end of verse five, and and he says, you start seeing this community develop, Father, Son, and Spirit working for you. God is a community. There is no illustration fitting for this. If a preacher says he can illustrate it, he's lying. To understand the Trinity is to lose your mind. To live without it is to lose your life. God is three distinct persons of co-equal subsistent nature, of one perfect being, Lord, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That God is a community, is imperative for your understanding of love. Let me say that again. That God is a community, is imperative for your understanding of love. St. Augustine states as much that should God have been a Unitarian being, one single being, he would fundamentally be a being of power. He exists to serve himself. Should God be a single Unitarian being? 1 John 4:8 would have then read, God is power. 1 John 4, 8 reads, God is love. Amen. Because God's eternally existent nature is not Unitarian, but Trinitarian, a relational community of Father, Son, and Spirit, therefore, he is fundamentally love. He exists to love in relation, in community. Do you see this? Father, Son, and Spirit, he's fundamentally love. Love precedes his power. His power serves his love his power warrants our obedience. But his love is, it's before that. You can't become the parent of your parents. Do you see? It precedes that. His love fundamentally precedes your act of obedience. My children can't earn my love. Do you see where I'm, what I'm doing? His love fundamentally precedes anything that you might do to earn his love. And he has invited you, he has incorporated you into his family, through Abraham, as we learned last week, into that holy community, demonstrating his love that is self-giving through himself, Christ. This passage, one I've had memorized since I was a child, it finally broke through to me. It finally broke through to me on Tuesday. My brain was tired after doing Bible study, but the sermon doesn't care. And so I stared at these 11 verses, and verse 6, my heart broke open. My heart broke open at this one little phrase, or while we were still helpless, at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. In an orphan's moment of hopelessness, it was adopted by a father at the right time. Do you remember the story about the boy who lived? His name's Harry Potter. A wizard. He was also an orphan. All his orphan life, he sensed his parents loved him but he was so unwontable. He didn't know how they loved him, and he didn't know why he was an orphan. But he had, he had faith that they loved him somehow, especially his mom, Lily. He hoped so, at least. In Harry's story, a terribly malevolent darkness was hell-bent on killing him. This darkness has a name, of course, Voldemort, but Harry, he overcomes Voldemort because of some unseeable power within him. Not understanding this, he asks his friend Dumbledore, and Dumbledore says, Harry, your mother died to save you. If there is one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love, as powerful as your mother's, it leaves a mark on you. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply, even though that person who loved us is gone, it gives us some kind of protection forever. It's in your very skin Voldemort, full of hatred and greed and ambition, he could not touch you for this reason. It would kill him to touch a person marked by something so good. At the right time, you see, in an hour of darkness, helplessness and need, Harry hears just how much he was loved. What kind of love? A love that was demonstrated through the outpouring of sacrifice. The orphan, at the right time, felt adopted, faith fulfilled, God has poured out his love for you, giving his life for you. He now leaves his mark on you, the Holy Spirit, which brings you salvation, and the evil one can't touch you. Do you see this? Therefore, the word of the Lord says, the love of God has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For a while, we were still helpless. At the right time, God died for us. Christ died for us, the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than because we have now been declared righteous by the blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more since we have been reconciled will we be saved by his life? And not only this, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So you have to ask yourself, Do you see it? Does it seem true? What would it look like for your life, maybe? Do you need it? Will you take it? Do you get it? You see, at the right time, the gospel breaks your heart open. You you get it. (laughs) And you don't stop getting it. When is God most pleased with you? When you're doing nothing. When did God die for you? At the right time. At the very moment when you or I were most sinful, most helpless, hopeless, ungodly, most self-justifying, at that very moment is when he decided, should I pour wrath? No, I pour and I pour and I pour my blood of love for you. At that moment in time. Do you get it? That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of Paul's and this experience that he had, that he can show us, that he can tell us, but mostly that your Holy Spirit preaches through us how much you love us. May that love go through the hearts in this room for all those who worry and stress and suffer and feel unwantable. We have been adopted into your family. In Jesus' name, amen.